Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 171, A Technology of Transcendence. This week, we speak with esteemed professor and teacher Roger Walsh on his journey from being a hardcore neuroscientist and psychiatrist to an avid meditator and mystic. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today over the telephone with Dr. Roger Walsh. Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Well, thank you. And I usually share a little bit of people's backgrounds, just so as we jump right into the content, people have a sense sort of of where you're coming from. So I figured I'll mention a few things, and then hopefully some other things will come out during the discussion. Some of the things that seemed really relevant are that you're a longtime spiritual practitioner, some 30 years. You're also an academic researcher. Um, In the last 10 years, you've been a teacher of meditation. I saw at one point you were teaching uh, Dzogchen with Lama Surya Das. Is that right? That's right. Actually, just got out of a out of teaching a uh, retreat within a couple of days ago. Nice, and and it's funny. I've run into you on long retreats before at the uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center. So I know you have a very dedicated um, meditation practice as well. Um, yes, we've we've practiced together. We just haven't talked together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was funny. I was uh, sharing the same floor with you, and I kept wondering. I said, I think that's Roger Walsh, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure until about halfway into the retreat. And um, you also are a professor at the University. University of California at Irvine, where you teach psychiatry, philosophy, anthropology. You're pretty busy over there, it seems like. Yes, I have a delightful job where I do get to range over a number of different topics, so that's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. And, and you also published some really interesting books. Uh, one of your earlier ones was called Paths Beyond Ego, and then um, more recently you've written one called Essential Spirituality, which we'll get into some more, and also the most recent was called The World of Shamanism. It sounds like you've had a very robust career in the past 30 years as a teacher and as a professor and as an academic. and You're holding so many different interesting roles. Well, I've been very fortunate in being able to, in having tenure and being able to follow where my heart drew me, basically. And personally, of course, like you, a lot of this is around the spiritual path and contemplative practices and Buddhist meditation. And professionally, it's around the area of psychology, psychiatry, philosophy, and I've been very fortunate in being able to uh, kind of marry those in my professional work, attempting to bring Dharma and meditative practices into the academy. So I feel very fortunate. Mm. And one thing I thought would be interesting to explore, because I understand you were an academic before you were a contemplative practitioner, and I thought it'd be interesting to hear kind of how you got into contemplative practice and and maybe... um, also, since this is Buddhist Geeks, how you got into Buddhist practice? Ah, uh, yes. Well, <laughs> that was a, uh, a very surprising process for me. I came over to the U.S. in the 70s and uh, came to do my psychiatry training, and I came pretty much as a hardcore neuroscientist. had been very much in the scientific mold all my life. had no knowledge or understanding of the inner world at all, but 
uh, in doing psychiatry, I found myself working with people who were having very strange experiences that I really didn't understand at all. And doing therapy with people, even though I wasn't terribly convinced it was particularly effective. And I figured I had a moral obligation to try psychotherapy for myself. So I had the very good fortune of going into therapy with a man by the name of James Bugenthal, who was a humanist existentialist and a a very sensitive and uh, mature man. So I went in for what I thought would just be a few interesting weeks. And I came out two years later with my whole worldview just turned around. I was open to the inner world, which I literally really had no appreciation of. I felt as though I'd spent my entire life living on the top six inches of a wave on top of an ocean that I didn't even really know existed. I really had, I mean, so much in my head, I really didn't appreciate at all just the extraordinary depth and richness of our inner world and the potentials it offers, the gifts it can give us. So psychotherapy really opened that up to me under the tutelage of this uh, remarkable man, James Pugentone, and I realized I'd been asleep, (laughs) that I'd literally been unconscious to a very deep part of myself, my psyche, my inner world. And as I looked around the world, it seemed that that was where most of our culture were. And I was very puzzled, in fact, somewhat distressed for some time because there just weren't many people who seemed to be appreciating what I had discovered, and most people seemed to be pretty unaware of this. But I kind of forged ahead, and being in California, had the opportunity of doing all sorts of <laughs> things. California is the, the melting pot of the world's spiritual traditions and workshops and investigations of one kind or another. So I did a lot of those and gradually found myself moving towards meditative and spiritual practices, even though at the time I was a very hardcore agnostic. And I couldn't understand why I was attracted to these contemplative practices, and even more so, I couldn't understand why they worked. At that stage, I thought religion was the opiate of the masses. And then there was literally one moment as I was walking towards dinner one evening when there was this insight which really changed my mind, my life. And it was that at the contemplative core of the world's great religions, hidden behind the conventional institutions such as the church or the synagogue or or the mosque were contemplative practices which effectively constituted a technology of transcendence, a way of training the heart and mind so as to induce the states of consciousness and stages of development that the great religious founders and sages had discovered. And these contemplative practices constituted this technology of transcendence which could allow each of us to have some of the same insights, the same openings, develop and mature in similar ways. Also, along with that, each of the spiritual traditions or contemplative traditions underlying the great religions had a roadmap, a psychology, a philosophy, which described the way the mind worked, the way the mind could be trained, and the way the world and reality look as you begin to develop and mature by doing these practices. And that was a mind-boggling recognition for me. I just, it literally just turned my mind and life around. And I was pretty shocked, frankly. And from that point on, I dove into into contemplative practices. And I can say more about that, but 
if you want to bounce off that and respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I know you've done a lot of practices in multiple different traditions, and I know some of your earliest practice was with some of the insight meditation teachers. I thought maybe it'd be interesting to hear kind of how you got into that, and if that was one of the first Buddhist practices that you did. It really was, yes. I had the very good fortune of hearing about the past meditation at a retreat I went to of Ram Dass's. And on the day after my 30th birthday, <laughs> I climbed very bleary-eyed and uh, a little hungover onto a plane and went off to, flew off to Oregon to go to a, my first meditation retreat with Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> I had a very hard time spending 10 days in silence and uh, removed from society and stimulation. I had a very hyperactive mind, <laughs> and it was very difficult. There were times I just thought, oh, my God, am I going crazy? What's going on here? But it was also extraordinarily valuable. And I came out of there and actually said to a couple of people, I should add that I'd done this just after finishing my psychiatry training, and I actually said to a couple of people, I think I learned as much in those 10 days about the mind as I learned in all my psychiatry training. You know, I'd learned a lot about various aspects of the mind and, and how to treat it in psychiatry, but Vipassana meditation just allowed me to see into the workings of the mind and to depths of the mind that I hadn't glimpsed either in my formal psychiatry training or even in my in-depth psychotherapy. So it really was a mind-blower to see the power of these practices. And, of course, once I saw that, then I was drawn more deeply in. I signed up for another retreat a few months later, and after a couple of years of this, really felt that this was such an extraordinary technology, such a remarkable practice, such an extraordinary way of being able to delve into the inner world that or inner universe and to illuminate uh, the mind and oneself and also the deepest questions of life. But I felt I really had to devote myself to this more. And so the day after I got tenure, I put in an application for two years leave of absence and uh, <laughs> headed, off to, headed off to Asia to Burma to sit. That's great. And then you did you get involved then in other Buddhist traditions? Because I know you're teaching Dzogchen now, so you must have sort of transitioned from the Theravada tradition to some of these other traditions too. I did, and I did it in a very curious way, which should probably be instructive to talk about a little. I did it actually out of <laughs> kind of necessity and of, out of my own, uh, what should we call it, pathology. <laughs> pathology. I've uh, spent a very, uh, a life, very much oriented towards achievement and doing things. And, of course, I brought my personality into my practice, so I brought an enormous amount of striving and achievement desire into my practice and worked very hard, very hard indeed. And, of course, there's certainly that ethos in the Theravadan tradition, you know, that one strives mightily as hard as one possibly can for enlightenment and that dovetailed with my particular personality or pathology, whatever you want to call it. And so I did work very hard, and of course there were benefits to that, but there was also a downside, and the downside was that after doing several long retreats over a period of a year, I burned out pretty badly, and I burned out to the stage that it was just very hard to work with the mind in any way and, and to make any kind of effort 
to the point that I really just felt like, what if I was going to sit, I just need to sit in a way that didn't involve manipulating the mind at all. And so uh, Zen Shikantaza drew me because, of course, the essence of Shikantaza in Zen is not to manipulate the mind, not to try to achieve, not to try to attain or even change in any way, but rather to just sit. In fact, in some traditions, that's about the only instruction you receive, just sit. So I was drawn to that, and and that uh, was valuable and also healing for me. I spent about seven years there until I learned about Dzogchen, and I made this wonderful discovery that one could do a practice fairly similar to uh, the Shikantaza, but with much more emphasis on relaxation. Then I gradually shifted into the Dzogchen practice uh, out of that initial interest and and flowered in various ways from there. Wow. You touched on all the major traditions. (laughs) Yeah, well, it took me a while to get into Tibetan Buddhism. At first, I was uh, really overwhelmed by the complexity and uh, I went to a couple of retreats that I, one of which I actually left halfway through because there was just too much ritual and complication for me. I'm not a particularly ritually oriented person. But eventually I met Suryadas and he, Lama Suryadas, has done a very nice job of introducing the Dzogchen practices without a lot of the traditional and cultural trappings. So he has done for the Dzogchen tradition and Vajrayana, in some ways what people like Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg did for the Theravadan tradition, that is, make the core practices available without necessarily requiring a lot of cultural trimmings or cultural uh, worldviews, etc. So that was very useful for me. and. That gradually led me into more deeply into the Vajrayana. I spent several years just doing the Trekchid, which is the central or unique practice of the Dzogchen tradition, traditional one of them anyway, which basically comprises a, a practice of resting in awareness. But as I was around this and the Vajrayana practice for a while, I was exposed to Manundro and uh, which are the foundational practices involving a lot of visualization and energetic work, etc. I initially swore there was no way I was going to do these because I'd done enough spiritual boot camps, but eventually I tried them and found, and as I did, I, of course I began to appreciate just how remarkably profound and powerful they are and eventually made the commitment to go through the complete nundra and Spent two years doing those practices, you know, the prostrations, the bodhisattvic uh, aspirations, the mandala offering, guru yoga, etc. And I have to say, I still regard those nundra practices as some of the most profound and valuable I've done. They're sometimes just called the preliminary practices, but I think that's a vast underestimation of their power and potency. Hmm, Interesting. I had no idea that you'd done the nundra practices. That's cool. Yeah, and I still value them. As I said, there's really some of the most valuable and remarkable practices I've done anywhere. Mm. One thing, because you'd mentioned your other main interest is really in the realm of psychiatry and psychology, and I was at a talk you were giving a few years ago in Boulder, and you were giving uh, in this presentation a model based on Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And 
You mentioned something that I'd never heard before, which was that toward the end of his career, Maslow added a level, a need level, and that it was something that was uh, even beyond self-actualization, which is usually known as his, the highest level of his hierarchy. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that level that he added and, and maybe say a little bit about how it relates also to the spiritual path. Yeah, sure, Vince, because your implication is very correct, and uh, uh, it's very relevant to spiritual practice. Maslow was famous for many things. He was a very extraordinary and creative psychologist, but one of the things he's best known for is the so-called hierarchy of needs, as you mentioned, in which he suggested that human needs operate in a hierarchy, starting with basic survival needs and moving on to things like uh, social belongingness and security needs and beyond that self-esteem. And then originally at the top of the pyramid, he put self-actualization, saying that after one had to some extent satisfied the prior needs, then there was an automatic emergent motivation that arose for people to actualize, to develop their potentials to become the fullest expression of who they could be. But as you said, towards the end of his life, he added a further need, which is a really interesting one, and that is self-transcendence. And the implication of the self-transcendent motive is that just developing one's personality, one's ego, is not ultimately satisfying. But beyond that, there is a desire to transcend, not just to develop the ego, but to transcend the ego, not just to become a full expression of one's personality and personhood, but to move to the transpersonal. That, of course, is very relevant to anyone who's a spiritual practitioner. And, of course, in some ways, we can even find intimations of that in the spiritual disciplines themselves. For example, this, you'll recognize the analogy to, for example, the uh, yogic chakras, which is also a hierarchy of motives in one dimension, uh, with uh, self-transcendence as uh, an expression of the, of the seventh chakra. We can find analogies, for example, in uh, the words of Jesus, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else shall be given unto you. Good theology is also good psychology, and that's a, that can certainly be uh, seen as an analogy to what Maslow was pointing towards. But it's very interesting that when you look around the world's spiritual traditions, the profound spiritual practices and traditions all point to the idea that Ultimately, we practice not just for ourselves alone, but for everyone, because we're not alone. We're not separate. And to practice for ourselves alone in some ways maintains the separation, builds up the bulwark uh, between ourselves and others, whereas an orientation towards service and contribution can be done both as a spiritual practice, but it's also a culmination of the practice. That is, we serve others as a way of doing our own spiritual practice, but also as an expression of our transpersonal nature. What I've I've suggested is that the motivation towards service, and in the Buddhist tradition, the bodhisattvic aspiration, which is perhaps the most profound and encompassing 
motive and service motive that humankind has ever come up with can be seen as a further culminating stage beyond even self-transcendence. And that seems to fit with what we know about spiritual practice and what we know about the way in which spiritual practitioners mature. Yeah, that's that's really um, beautiful. And it's interesting to see the bodhisattva path as being something which you're saying is really a further development of even transcending the personal realm. It's kind of like the integration somehow, coming back into the personal realm. Yeah, well said, very nicely said. Um, the bodhisattvic aspiration, of course, is to awaken and develop oneself so as to be an optimal instrument for the awakening and, and help and healing of all. So one of the interesting things about the hierarchy of needs is that higher-order motives include lower-order ones. So the aspiration to serve and contribute, or in the bodhisattvic aspiration form of it, the aspiration to help and heal and awaken all beings necessitates that one develop and mature and heal oneself so as to be an optimal instrument of healing. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.